0: I'm Christoph Sukup. I'm Austrian, based in Germany, and I work in the area of circular economy. I help help businesses on their journey towards circular economy.
1: I met Christoph a couple of years ago. We are alumni of the Ashoka Visionary Program, and uh, we shared many meaningful conversations and also a few beers. His story is inspiring to me because it reveals what happens when we persist in our individual purpose. Despite the ups and downs, aside from achievements and failures, we see that something else is happening. In perspective, it is easier to find that change happens no matter what. Today, you listen to his story and his work in the field of circular economy. I hope you enjoy it. The question is, what is the circular economy? In the context of today's world
0: today we are basically operating our whole economy on linear principles we take stuff out of the earth we produce stuff we make things we use them and at the end we waste them we throw them away they get burned they get dispersed in the environment they get dispersed into the air into the water wherever Uh, and we talk even about cradle to grave So, we take things and we put them to grave after use. Whereas a circular economy really looks from the beginning, from the scratch, to get things back. Either as products, on a product level, or as materials that are contained in products, or even on element level. People tend to think about closed loops usually, so one company producing stuff, taking it back and making the same products out of it again. That's most of the time not the case. Usually, you will see uh, larger loops where different companies are involved, and that is also a characteristic of the circular economy. That really it, uh, it requires and makes possible uh, cooperation and um, coordination among different companies. So. In a linear company, we take, make, use waste. In a a circular economy, we try to conceptualize products right at the beginning when we develop them to be able to take them back and reuse either the products, as I said, or the materials contained.
1: I'm finding that social entrepreneurs often carry fascinating stories about their paths. Can you share how you arrived at this moment in your career?
0: If I look back and try to make sense of my evolution, um, I'd say I'm a business uh, guy by training, so I was, I started business administration and economics, international business administration at the Viennese uh, University of Economics. I mean, this is a very classical education. You get trained in bookkeeping, in costing, accounting, uh, financing, marketing, personnel management, stuff like that. But I remember, already back then, I had some questions in mind. For example, I was always asking myself, we're talking about um, growth, economic growth every year, and um, an economic growth of 1.5% is perceived better than an economic growth growth of only 0.8%. And I was asking myself, where can this lead, and where does it end? It can't go on, I, I mean, it was clear to me, it can't go on like this forever. And I tried to ask this question and I didn't get any substantial answer at the university, because it was so baked into all the theories we were talking about. Growth was, was one of the basic axioms that were really baked into each and every theory. There was no real answer to to, to my question, but I didn't follow up on it. I just kept it in mind and realized, okay, I don't get any answers. Then I started a just ordinary career in industry. I went into the car industry and did that. Did did uh, different things. A diverse area of d- jobs I had. I started in organizational development and then went on to 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 purchasing and worked with suppliers. Had a team of people that. Um, would help suppliers understand the complicated and complex processes of the uh, OEM I worked for. And finally I ended up in, I didn't end up, it was a, a deliberate decision, but I kind of ended up in the sustainability function. I got I took on the responsibility for responsible sourcing, which I was asked if I wanted to do that. And I said, yes, okay, I'm gonna do it without any real idea of what's really behind that. And the deal was at that time, you're going to keep the green tidy so that we can do our purchasing work uh, without any um, problems and uh, hassle. We didn't keep the deal because we we got into human rights. We we got into also a little uh, um, ecological, uh, a little bit ecological questions. And there I realized. This was actually the first time i was really doing a job i was paid for and could identify with what i did because i only happened to stumble into automotive industry and I was never really a car guy as as people would call it and and there being responsible for responsible sourcing i realized you can get paid for a job you really love and you really identify with so this was also maybe this the beginning of of the end of this era uh, working for a car in a car company and when i got the chance everybody got the chance to 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 um take a leave package but i i took it as one of few people tend to stay there once you're there you want to stay there because you earn good money you have reputation you have good company behind you everything But for me, it was clear, okay, this is a sign and an impulse for me to leave. And um, I took one year off, and that's what I did. I I took care of a a vineyard in that year. I started to cook meals in the streets with uh, food that would otherwise have been wasted, stuff like that. And it wasn't a plan to get into consulting and to to work on my own account and stuff. Uh, Actually, I intended to go to a smaller company, small medium or medium-sized company to take on the responsibility for CSR, corporate social responsibility. But it didn't really work out, so uh, out of different reasons. Sometimes it was me, sometimes it was the other side that didn't, mm-hmm. um, it didn't fit. And with that evolution, all of a sudden, this idea of the circular economy came up again. I remember one day, a young lady that was working in my team as a trainee mentioned circular economy and five R's that are important in that. But I didn't give too much attention to it at that time. But when I was in this career break, this this idea came up again, all of a sudden. And then it was there and didn't go away. So... I decided, more or less, all of a sudden, too, to, to uh, devote my professional life to this topic. And um, that's how it started. And now I'm I'm right in the middle of it. And I have the impression that this will be a companion of my professional life for quite a while now.
1: What was the status of the circular economy in Europe when you started? And how is it now? I think at the time
0: when I started... Doing or, or orienting myself towards the circular economy as a consultant two years back, circular economy was was a topic for insiders, um, at least in the German speaking world. Nobody would really, I mean, people would have heard about the term, but nobody would really have an idea of what it is, what it could be good, what it could be good for, or what could um, be the business benefit of it. This has changed. I think that's also mainly due, or yeah, with, for a good percentage, due to what has happened on EU level with the um, EU Green Deal and the Circular Economy Action Plan that is associated with it, which were both released at the end of 2019 and beginning of 2020 now we are talking about uh, eu taxonomy taxonomy for sustainable finance uh, we are talking about new normal with uh, a corona pandemic uh, so things have changed quite substantially since then but if you look back on an awareness level things have really changed massively within the last two years people have heard about circular economy People get more and more. I mean, it's now. I mean, deciders within companies I talk to, people in, in in these positions now, more and more have the impression it has something to do with their business or will have something to do with their business. If we look on the actual level of advancement of circular economy business concepts, this is a different story. We are still operating on. And this has been examined, for examined, for example, by a think tank uh, that is based in Amsterdam, Circular Economy, it's called. They have been examining the status of the circular economy over the last five years and really measuring that. And what they come up with is our economy, it varies from year to year a little bit, but it's... M- if something is happening as an evolution, it's more a recess than a than a um, increase. We're still operating on less than ten percent uh, circular terms, our economy. So it's ninety percent is still linear. And I also see that in my work, when I work with companies, I offer them what I call a circular test bench, where they can put on one of their products or services, and we think through it in circular terms and look at the potentials and also the efforts that are connected to making some elements more circular. And this is something companies are very much interested in. And people always get tend to get quite excited about the idea of making things more circular um, around their products or services. But then they realize they have to go really into the business models if they want to change, substantially change something towards more circular um, operations. And that's where companies usually tend to get reluctant because, um, I mean, the linear business models work very well, still work very well. It's in the environment that we see consequences. It is maybe with the pandemic, we see consequences, but this is still happening outside. It's not in the business models that there are really huge uh, problems or question marks coming up. The linear models still operate and and work very well, and they also bring profits, they are profitable. So on the level of what's really happening, And how is the transformation towards the circular economy proceeding? I'd say there hasn't been much evolution over the last two years. It's more on the um, concept level and that people get to know the idea or get closer to the idea and realize it could have something to do with my company and what exactly could it be. They're starting to ask questions, but not so much uh, really rebuilding their businesses yet.
1: Can you tell me more about how did the linear model come to be? And what do you think keeps us from adopting the circular model? When we're talking about business models and concepts that are
0: better understood, it all may sound a little complicated. Whereas actually, when you look at it, it is not. Because if you go back in history, only maybe 80, 80 years before World War II, basically all of our economy operated on circular terms. There was no waste. I mean, who would throw away something that is broken? It would be repaired. And if it couldn't be repaired, it would be, it would be, be turned into a toy for the children. And even like if you go back into, to the middle ages worn clothes would be turned into paper. We wouldn't cut trees for paper. We would take worn clothes and make paper out of it. Just two examples now. So if you go back, and you, as I said, you don't have to go back very far, eight years before World War II, um, we don't see a linear economy. The linear economy actually started, I mean, you don't find a day where it started, but you maybe find a an, an era when it began with World War Two. Because there, production was ramped up, military production. All the companies were um, oriented towards uh, increasing output and increasing output for military uses and purposes. And when World War Two was over, these uh, output capacities were there, but the demand wasn't anymore because the war was over, destruction was over. Okay, there was reconstruction where you still could put in some products and then and, and there was much demand but go forward another five ten years maybe to 1955 ten years after the war basically the reconstruction was done so now what what happens next you have the production facilities you have the output capacities and nobody needs anything anymore and that's where the the throwaway mentality uh, was produced um, the 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 plant obsolescence was something that was already invented in the 1930s where um light bulb producers said okay we want to limit the lifetime of light bulbs so that people have to buy replacement bulbs so the idea as i said there was no birthday for for this these ideas it kind of came up over the let's say the 20th century basically um, which brought us to a situation where it's, it's normal that we throw away things, we don't repair them anymore, we don't reuse them anymore, we buy dedicated toys for our children, we don't take the broken things to give them to the uh, to the children for playing purposes. So you see, there's all a reconceivement, let's say, of, of of how we handle things and how we interact with things. There's even a guy I know very well who says, we're already trained as children to throw things away. Because if a a toy breaks, you don't repair it. You throw it away. And that's how you grow into the world, uh, learning that it's normal to throw things away, which wasn't, as I said, uh, 80 or 100 years back. So the circular economy itself is not a complicated idea. The only thing that is complicated now is that we are really locked into the linear processes, we have waste incineration plants that are hugely, hugely um, lucrative. They have been uh, written off to to zero uh, residual value, and now they produce, produce, produce heat and energy without any cost almost. So it's attractive to burn stuff because you, as we say, we... um, reuse them thermically, but we don't reuse them. We burn them once and then the party is over for them. But still, as they are so profitable, nobody wants to leave um, this system. So that's where we get stuck and that's what we call lock-in effects. We are locked into a system where it's not so easy to escape, both on a economic level but also on a business level. So on both uh, levels, national and also
1: individual businesses are locked into that. After seeing the streets without cars at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought that the new reality might bring our civilization to a massive change, a tipping point of sorts. I wonder, do we need more catastrophes to make a change? In your opinion, what do we need to restore the way we produce and consume to integrate circular principles?
0: I mean, if you look at it like this, you can really get desperate. That's that's true. And what I try to do is really work with those that are willing to change something. Like I usually work uh, exclusively work with small and medium sized businesses. And there, what you find is, oftentimes you have an owning comp, an owning family behind the business. Maybe not in opera, uh, not in in uh, executive uh, power anymore or executive responsibility, but at least behind and they usually tend to have a long-term view, and they usually tend to feel a responsibility towards their, their employees, which I perceive is a good prerequisite to have something what we tend to call today purpose. They want to, I mean, they want to make money, for sure. Most of them want to, but that's not the main purpose. There's something more usually there And if it's only the responsibility they feel for their employees, let's say in this sample, you do find people that are really willing at least to look how a transformed business model could look like and that are willing to go forward. I wouldn't be too negative about our economy. There are are quite some amazing people in the economy, right in the middle and in responsible functions, that are willing to change and that are willing to look at what they do from a, let's say, sustainability perspective. Sustainable meaning being able to do something for a sustained period of time, not just a short period. one. Uh-huh. Um, so that's what I try to do. I try to, to look at those In my podcast that I do, Müll ist Mist, a German podcast, I only talk to people that are already implementing solutions of the circular economy. But also in my work as a consultant, as a paid consultant, I try to find those that are able to lead the pack. And my image I I really have in mind when I do this is um, making popcorns. I mean, you probably will have done popcorn uh, on your own at home, and and you know the feeling that you put on the the, the the you put on the the pan, you put in oil, you turn on the heat, then you put in the corn and uh, uh, you cover it, and then nothing happens, and f- for quite some while nothing happens, and you start to ask yourself, am I burning the fat? Um, doesn't it work today, is the the weather too bad or whatever, nothing happens. And then once you think, okay, this won't work today, the first or the second corn already pops. And once this has happened, it really goes fast. It's an exponential evolution starting from there. So you see a long time where nothing really happens and then all of a sudden the pan is full of popped corn. And this is like, the guiding idea I follow with my work. I'm I'm not considering myself as the pan that makes every corn pop, but I try to find those corns in the field that are ready to pop and help them evolve and, 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 and move slowly towards a more circular business model.
1: It is amazing how much we love to talk about a better future, but how tough it is for us to be comfortable with making changes to the status quo.
0: You know what? I learned that once uh, I met uh, when I when I did my master thesis or my, my doctoral thesis, I met a lady who, who was doing a doctoral thesis at the same time. And she was doing it based on the question how to overcome resistance in change processes. And what she said to me, I'll never forget that. She said, we usually, like we have always um, a people are spread evenly around the attitude towards this change project. There will be 5% that are really enthusiastic about it and say okay let's go for it. There will also be 5% that will try to avoid whatever is possible to to do whatever is possible to avoid this change to happen. So you have these two poles and in between you have 45% that are let's say hesitantly positive and the other 45 that are hesitantly negative not negative but but waiting yeah and okay let's wait and see and then little skeptical maybe and what we usually do is we try to convince those that are crying the loudest and those are the five percent that are really completely against it and those are the lost people she said don't focus on them what you have to do actually is try to convince only a few of those 45% that are hesitant and, and still waiting, bring them over to decide whether 45% or 50% of the leaning positively towards the change. You bring some of them over and then the balance starts to, to, uh, to, to tilt. And that's I think that's amazing as an idea because it really allows us to work with those that are either already Embracing change or that are at least open to change if only
1: they see that it works. And how is it for corporations? I guess they would rather wait for a legal framework to be implemented before changing their business models. What I experienced in my time still working for a big car maker, that
0: the readiness for change in those companies, you usually say, okay, they they are they are against change, they want they are lobbying against change and, and and stuff. The readiness to change something, at least in some functions and some areas of these companies, is way bigger than even politicians think. So for example, there was this huge desire, even to get legislation on human rights at the time when I was still um, uh, responsible for responsible sourcing. Why? It's easy. Because once you get legal requirements, and we do see that coming up now everywhere almost in in Europe, they're even working on an EU regulation on that. Once you raise the bar for everybody, the playing field is level again. Because everybody has to comply with human rights regulations on a higher level which makes it easier for the individual individual company to do the move, one thing. And second thing is it also um, allows for innovation. We've seen it in the past. Take, um, I don't know if the catalysator in a car is, in English,
1: would be called catalyst, catalysator, Uh, what's the word for that? If I'm not mistaken, I think it is a catalytic converter. When this was introduced, the, the
0: basically or mainly the German auto industry said this will be the death of the auto industry if you introduce that. The politicians kept um, pushing it forward, the legislation, and brought it. And what happened wasn't the death of the auto industry, it was an innovation. And it really, 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 really um, solved some, some big problems um, concerning lead which was still in the gas at that time. But catalysts couldn't drive with lead, so they had to get lead free. And also emission um, emission quantities. It was a huge leap forward towards lower emissions, cleaner um, exhaust gases, and so on. And it wasn't the end of the auto industry at all to the country. And the same applies to, to many, many other things. If you look at the photovoltaics, which was brought into legislation or which was pushed, at least in Germany, by a um, renewables energy law where people would get quite a high uh, remuneration for power that is produced in photovoltaic um, installations. This was really the breakthrough for a market that wasn't existing before 20 years back. it's it's really it has been 20 years back um people would get up to 50 per, uh, 50 cent a kilowatt hour um of of power produced in such an installation at the beginning now it's less than 7 cent but that's like the basic idea was how do you build a market that is not there you have to subsidize it and that what has, that's what has happened so i think regulation to um to uh, bring a level playing field for everybody helps. It's not something that is absolutely needed and doesn't go without, but I'm I'm not the person always waiting for, I I don't think it's useful to wait for politics to to move. But that helps. Also incentives or subsidies can help to get something going. Mm -hmm. Think, for example, um, of a recycling quota Every product has to contain this and that percentage of recycled plastics, for example. Every product that contains plastics. You don't market the product with a a level of recycled plastics below 25%, for example. This sets free innovation and all of a sudden there is a market for recycled plastics that is not there yet. There's fragmented smaller market pieces, but there is no market for recycled plastics. There's people setting up such platforms. Um, I know a guy, Christian Schiller, who who sets up Surplus, that's a platform for only recycled plastics, but he says the issue is neither the demand nor um, the offer is really there because it's not a working market. But if you set this regulation, 25% of a Plastic in a product has to come from um, recycled sources. All of a sudden, this changes everything. And then bring those to the front that are already embracing this new um, way of doing business. Bring them to the front, make them visible, tell the stories of them, and make people believe that this really works and it's not just a nice concept um, that is somewhere that sits somewhere in the books, but it's really a concept that can um, make a business profit or keep a business profitable. Although, and this is again a hurdle, it takes some time and you don't really know where it leads you to. Yeah. In in, in linear business model everything in a linear business model everything has been Um, Proven, yeah. You know how linear business models work.
1: I see more and more products specifying the percentage of recycled materials they contain. Is that a good beginning?
0: You have to look at everything you do from a systems perspective within the circular economy. And if you just take out one piece and say, okay, I have now, as you said, 50% recycled plastics with everything else unchanged, the chances are high that this is not a viable, sustainable solution for what you do. But you can show that you're doing something and people will tend to think, okay, he's on the right path. Whereas in reality, if you really double check it, you may may realize it's the same business, just with um, a slightly greener touch. That's the only caveat I have to to bring up here, because it's really prone to to greenwashing. What is happening right now, and it needn't even be on purpose. It can also be by um, with well intention, uh, with good intentions, so well intended, but not knowing that the whole system is 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 a different story, or the, the, the effects on the system level are. Um, in total negative.
1: Dear Christophe, thank you very much for your input and remarkable story. It is evident that changing the way we produce and consume is essential to the good health of our planet and our future. I hope we learn to deal with our short-term activities and balance the importance of attending the long-term ones. Let's keep the adventure going with good company joyful moments, love, health and growth. See you at the next one.